With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His idea that this is a good thing to do, to give Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, sort of the cover of the American presidency because it's good for business, even that is factually wrong. It is not good for American business. It is not good for American foreign policy. It is not good for America's interest in trying to contain Iran. It is the opposite of all those things. Many people just left and right outraged by this murder and the fact that they think the president needs to have a stronger moral position for our country. This is likely not the end. There are likely to be follow-up questions. And the, the door is still open for Robert Mueller to seek an interview um, with President Trump. That is certainly not off the table. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Leon Krause. We are recording this podcast from Univision's studios in West Los Angeles, California, where I work as a, as a news anchor. I've been living here in L.A. for seven years now, and I have never experienced anything remotely like last week. Late Wednesday night, a man walked into the borderline Barron Grill in Thousand Oaks, which until then was one of the safest cities in the country, and opened fire. He killed 12 people who were there celebrating college dance night. The next day, as I stood outside the Thousand Oaks Civic Plaza for an afternoon vigil in memory of the victims, I could see a widening cloud of smoke across the 101 freeway towards the Pacific. And there was a mighty warm wind blowing from the east that tipped over one of our lights for the newscast. These are known as the Santa Ana winds and their consequences in the dry weather can be devastating. By Friday morning, the effects of the winds on the fire in the Santa Monica Mountains was becoming tragically clear. The region had never seen anything like this. The Woolsey Fire, as it has been called, has destroyed 1,400 structures and turned the landscape into something apocalyptic. It will take decades for the wildlife to recover in the area. 88% of the federal parkland is now gone. In Northern California, the scene was even worse. The campfire burnt the town of Paradise, population 25,000, to the ground, to ashes. The place no longer exists, period. 10,000 structures are gone over there. The current death toll is 77, with a thousand people, a thousand people, still missing. The images from the area, the, the videos, for example, the videos of people sobbing while they, they try to drive away from the fire in local roads engulfed by flames are honestly hard to even try to describe. In the middle of this disaster, politics, of course, politics happened. A couple of days after the midterms, which proved particularly brutal for the Republican Party precisely here in Southern California and in California in general, President Trump at first couldn't bring himself to offer a generous, mostly humane hand to the state. For a man who, who doesn't come from the world of politics, I'm sure you all agree, Trump doesn't seem able to let go of the world of politics. 
In any case, Trump finally came around and visited California on Saturday. He toured both ends of the state with Governor Jerry Brown and the incoming Governor Gavin Newsom, both very vocal anti-Trump politicians. Trump, of course, does not like them either, but thankfully things stayed mostly civil during the president's visit. Faced with devastation, though, Trump, while he seemed restrained, he again repeated the claim that forest management, clearing and cleaning of brush in forests, was mostly to blame for what has happened. Today, we will look at what some have described as the new abnormal, natural disasters like these in the time of climate change and political polarization, a terrible combination. We will look at what went on after the president's response. But first, we should honestly try to add some levity to the proceedings. So here are the tweets. So-called comedian Michelle Wolf bombed so badly last year at the White House Correspondents' Dinner that this year, for the first time in decades, they will have an author instead of a comedian. Good first step at a comeback of a dying evening and a tradition. Maybe I'll go. Of course, we should have captured Osama Bin Laden long before we did. I put it out in my book just before the attacks on World Trade Center. President Clinton famously missed his shot. We paid Pakistan billions of dollars, and they never told us he was living there, fools. We no longer pay Pakistan the billions because they would take our money and do nothing for us. Bin Laden being a prime example, Afghanistan being another. They were just one of many countries that take from the United States without giving anything in return. That's ending. Catch and release is an obsolete term It is now catch and detain illegal immigrants trying to come into the U.S., often proudly flying the flag of their nation as they ask for U.S. asylum, will be detained or turned away. Dems must first approve border security and wall now. Challenges like the devastating fires in California this past week will keep coming. Among other factors, climate change will make this inevitable. That is why it's crucial to understand how political leaders at the local, state and federal level should respond to disasters such as this. Our guest today has written extensively about natural disasters and the way politicians and others handle a crisis of such magnitude. Scott uh, Gabriel Knowles is a history professor at Drexel University and an affiliate of the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. He's also the author of the book, The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risks in Modern America. Scott, welcome. Thank you very much. So you, you wrote a very interesting piece for the New York Times uh, after Trump's uh, disgraceful response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Uh, we'll touch on many of the things you bring up, but uh, let me begin with a very basic one. How should we define what a disaster is and, and why is it important to do so? I think it's crucial that we define disasters as social processes and I don't mean to say by that that they don't, it's not an event that actually happens. And it, of course, it occurs in a, in a place, in a time. But I think we run a real risk when we define a disaster too narrowly and don't think about it as a, a kind of a process that reveals societal values. So 
I would really want to emphasize the disaster as having um, the ability to impact people not only where we think it's impacting them, but over large geographical areas and also across time. You know, disasters are hard to pin down. When do they begin and when do they end? And so if we can have a more expansive definition, then we can actually really start to tally up the effect of a disaster in society. And it's always much greater, particularly with more recent disasters, than often politicians would like us to believe. So it goes well beyond the event itself. It has to. I think if we can define it. If you're a first responder, of course, the event is there for you to manage, and that's reasonable. I think we have to attend to that definition. But if you take uh, Hurricane Maria, for example, the failure of the power grid didn't happen in that storm. The failure of the power grid was the accumulation of deferred maintenance over a long period of time. If we don't take into account those sort of factors, we'll never really have an educated sense of why disasters occur where they occur and why they're as impactful as they are. We will, of course, talk about politicians, but first I would like to ask you about people. How do people behave in disasters? Last year in Mexico, we had a brutal earthquake. I was in Los Angeles, but my parents were there, my whole family, my friends. I mean, I was born in, in Mexico City that was deeply impacted. Hundreds died. It was a tragedy, to be sure, but seeing the reaction of people helping out, digging in the rubble, it, it just seemed hopeful. And we have seen similar scenes in California in, in recent days. Is that the normal response of people to disasters? I think that it's one of those things that gives us hope often in the midst of these really terrible situations. So not to speak too academically first, but I think what you've described is exactly right. It's the encounter of people with disasters, often one, it's, of course, it's jarring. It's surreal in many cases, and it's one where they find themselves often shoulder to shoulder with people they don't know helping. Now. There's also good research on this. And in fact, the research goes back more than half a century. You might be interested to know that it, this is research that the government paid for in the 1950s and 60s to try to model how Americans would react to nuclear attack. They were very mm -hmm. concerned that a nuclear attack would come and people would basically turn into, it would turn into a state of nature and that people would, you know, worst case scenarios that we can imagine sort of apocalyptic scenes. But the research that they paid for actually indicated again and again that there's a pro-social reaction to disaster. In other words, we help each other, we pull each other out of the rubble, and we don't wait for the firemen to arrive to do it. Now, there are limits to that, that it depends on how much people trust authority, it depends on how connected they feel to the political process, and it's not a helping or a pro-social behavior without end. It doesn't go on forever, but at least in the immediate aftermath, what you've described is exactly what I see, and it's also what the research tells us we should expect. And what's next for people affected by disaster? Specifically, I'm thinking of, of the fires, the California fires, people who have lost everything, their homes, their belongings, even their loved ones. How do people recover from something like this? It's that first phase that we were just talking about is one where there's a lot of help and there's a lot of media and there's usually resources made available through charity. And that period goes away relatively quickly and then people were faced with dealing with institutions. And that can, for some people, be easy. And for others, it can be very, very difficult, depending on how much they've lost, depending if they've had their own health impacts. And again, depending on you know, how much money they had when they started out and where they were in terms of socioeconomic status. For most people, it means dealing with an insurance company, and it means dealing with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, 
and also state agencies. They're going to be applying for benefits. They're going to be applying to get their payouts for their insurance. And for some people, this is a matter of months. And for others, it's a matter of years. So it's hard to generalize. I mean, recovery from disaster, I think we can often say it really sort of tracks people's status before disaster. And disasters tend to punch down. So if you don't have a lot going into a disaster, you may find yourself in an even worse situation coming out. Ideally, what role should the government play in, in that recovery you, you're describing? Well, this is a matter of enormous debate, as you can imagine. I mean, there's people mm -hmm. who who believe that... I mean, we, we had a sort of national discussion about this after the, the hurricanes, the three hurricanes that came in 2017. And one observation some people made was, well, there's clearly not enough people insured. We don't have enough insurance, private insurance, to help people out when these kind of floods come. And I think we see similar arguments after wildfires that we don't have enough people with enough insurance coverage. That's one thing that really helps people cope if they have that sort of peace of mind to know that they'll be made at least partially whole again after a disaster. But then how are we going to pay for that, right? So we have a flood insurance program in the United States that's mostly subsidized by the federal government. That's a I think most people would say a crucial role for the government, but not everyone in Congress agrees, and it's up once again for reauthorization. So that debate is playing out again. Similar sort of discussion with fire. Should we have reduced cost or subsidized fire insurance for people who live in California, the way they have hurricane insurance for people in Florida? This plays out, it's hard to generalize because it plays out state by state and disaster type by disaster type. You've described for us disasters as a process, a chain of occurrences, not only the event itself, but its long-term consequences. President Trump, on the other hand, seems to think otherwise. He says something like this, and I'm going to quote you. If you didn't die uh, then, during the event, and there, you don't count. Is, historically speaking, is this sort of cynicism typical of politicians, or is it just Trump? Well... I'm about to give an answer that most historians would kind of regret because we wouldn't like to make things so individual to one policymaker. But we have no real record in American history of a president acting this way consistently in the aftermath of disasters. We just don't. We don't have, I mean, it's very hard to find a president who acts this way, blaming the victim, intentionally going to what's often the easiest and most incorrect answer. We can talk about that in the context of the fires, I'm sure. But no, he's, um, as he is in so many ways, he's truly unique in this again. <laughs> His obsession with immigration, for example, has affected FEMA's budget recently, diverting close to $10 million from the Emergency Management Agency to ICE, the country's immigration enforcement machine. How does this affect recovery? Because it's, it's not only the way he refers to disasters, the way he, he personally responds to them, but also policy. You know, as we begin to think about how Trump, when we begin to think about how Trump impacts recovery, the place I think you have to start is, is really how he's To how he's operating as a sort of consoler-in-chief, how he's actually helping people deal with stress. Has he? <laughs> no, exactly. No, I mean, he adds to the stress. And this is the problem. And I think this is part of his politics, of course, is that any event is an opportunity to score political points and to draw some sort of distinction between himself and some sort of enemy. And also a sort of confusion of issues, which he's quite good at. So your example of diverting funds out of FEMA, you know, that's a great one. So he's misunderstood the importance of the need for funds in one area and put them in another area, which he's defined as his own disaster, which he says is the 
so-called uh, invasion at the border. His first job, and any president's first job in a situation like this, is to be a crisis communicator, and that's to give very clear information um, as a disaster is unfolding. And that is not so easy. People think crisis communication is easy, but people are listening to multiple different sources, and there are very few sources that are sort of universally authoritative. The president of the United States voice, regardless of your politics, is generally deemed as authoritative in the middle of a disaster. In his case, he's taken this opportunity to score political points in, in an infuriating way in California, to my mind. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah, he, he can only see public life, political life in, in a binary fashion. He, he doesn't seem to me at all interested in how to fix uh, the crisis or any crisis. Like I said at the beginning, and, and you just mentioned, he, he seems to care only about politics. He, and he has been especially critical, like you just mentioned, of California's, for example, the, the state's environmental policies. He once blamed fires on the state's water management, for example. Right. Blaming California... I don't know. I've, I've struggled to come up with the exact metaphor here, but it might be like blaming the airport screeners for the collapse of the World Trade Towers. You know, it's, it's certainly true that the management of the forest in California has been a long-term issue with lots of different perspectives on it, and maybe there have been some mistakes made over the years, and I think people in Cal Fire and follow that world are in it would admit that they're challenges. However... Most of the land that he seems to think is being managed by California is not managed by California. It's managed by the federal government. And most of the places where the fires are occurring um, are at the wildland-urban interface. They're not in some sort of forest that he seems to think is being mismanaged by the governor of California. So in this case, not only has he taken the opportunity of the disaster to sow fear and discord, he's also taken the opportunity to sow confusion so that if people actually want to know what are the issues here, who is responsible for this, what policymakers should be handing us solutions, he's making that, that worse. So, you know, no information is better than disinformation, and that's you know, the tweet that you mentioned is disinformation. He recently used Finland as an example of how to manage forests, and people in Finland uh, responded by posting pictures of themselves raking raking their, their, <laughs> their backyard or whatever. <laughs> No. Will we avoid the, the next fire if we just rake away, Scott? Well, sure. The same way that victims of Hurricane Maria will rebuild their lives by having uh, rolls of paper towels thrown to them by the president. You remember that episode oh, when yeah. he went down there I and do. handed that paper towel? I mean, these are absurdities. It speaks, I'm afraid, to an individual who maybe he received some information about how forest management works in Finland, that he heard a little piece of it. And he decided that at that moment, that would be a good example to wheel out to say that California had done things wrong. But raking the forest, vacuuming the forest, this is nonsensical. There are things we know will work, but the way he's describing it is, once again, it's absurd. That's a perfect segue to my next question, which is, do you think that a weak 
like last week in California, is going to be the new abnormal. Someone was describing it not as uh, the new normal, but actually the new abnormal. Will the coming years bring us more disasters like the, like the ones we just saw? I'm afraid so, and I base my judgment of that on two things. One of them has to do with the climate predictions, which are going to bring us greater aridity and the sort of conditions that lead to uh, drier seasons and uh, you know the causes for the kind of fires that we're seeing, not only in California, but also in recent years in Arizona and Texas and in other states um, where they haven't seen necessarily this kind of wildfire risk. It's, it's increasing. That's, that's one. So we have to talk about climate change as part of this story. The other part of it, though, um, and, and some people might say, oh, well, then that's a natural disaster. So that's Eh, we don't have anything to do with that. We'll leave that be. But the other part of the story is the way that we have built ourselves into harm's way. This is the same as people living in uh, flood zones in Florida and Texas and North Carolina. In California, those lands at what they call the wildland urban interface, those lands mm -hmm. are valuable lands, and they have been very steadily developed since World War II, and we have built ourselves into these very hazardous conditions. And that's where the policy can come in. That's where we can direct change going forward. But unfortunately, it has been very, very difficult to slow growth because the growth machine is a political machine. And that's the reality of disasters in the United States of many, many different types. We are actively building ourselves into these situations. Yeah, that, that happened in Houston, and it certainly happened in the Santa Monica Mountains uh, as well here in Southern California. Now, human beings do play a role in uh, in forest fires. We do make them. We do make them worse. Do we need a renewed sense of, like, let's say, civic culture when it comes to things like the effect we have on on the environment in this particular issue? That's a really interesting question because it it gets to this distinction that we might want to make between a uh, a forest fire and a, uh, fires that occur in other places. The majority of the, well, the deaths, certainly, and the majority of the, of the economic losses you're seeing are not fires in pristine forests and remote places, right? I mean, those do occur, and most people don't know about them. The fires we're paying attention to are happening because they're burning into towns and, into towns and cities. That doesn't mean it's not an environmental issue or can't be approached with a sense of civic responsibility or stewardship. And There's some really interesting examples of that. There were legislation that was passed earlier in the in the 21st century that it really encouraged local communities to organize around being fire safe. And the National Fire Protection Association and even the Forest Service have sponsored these kind of fire-ready communities and um, activities along those lines. Very interesting sort of community preparedness for disasters that they know are going to come. So I think we can point to that. But unfortunately, it's it's very lightly funded and it's sporadic. It's not really um, caught on the way you, you might expect that it would in these in these areas. I think we should look for more of that. We should encourage that. Absolutely. You have mentioned legislation. So please allow me an impossible question. What would you do if you were in government? This is a, a case. If I were in government, the first thing I would be calling for is to double down on the research because this is not a static situation. This is, again, very similar to what we're talking about with sea level rise and climate change as it affects hurricane seasons. If you treat the environment as static, 
you will not get your answers correct these days. You have to treat the environment as dynamic. The climate environment, the meteorological environment, the fire environment are all dynamic systems. And yet we've seen time and again funding at the state level and at the federal level being cut for these kind of activities. Anything these days that is climate change research is uh, hard to get through. And so, you know, these are research programs that require, are going to require generational commitments. Can't cut the funds every time one party comes into the White House and, and another party goes out of the White House. So the first thing I would do would be to try to find places where you can get bipartisan support for research initiatives that can live through time and can try to give policymakers the answers they need when they try to really do the real work of policy, which is should we build here or not build here? Do we need more money for firefighting here and not there to direct resources in that way? So that's the first thing that I would do. The other thing I would try to do in a state like California is try to find ways to incentivize the private sector and property owners and nonprofits to work together uh, to find advantages to reduce growth in places where we know the risk is high because it's the growth machine. It's the, it's the finance and real estate sector that's really driving the growth of a lot of this risk. There's examples in um, flood zones where you can take land out of use uh, for homes and you can put it to other uses and it doesn't destroy the economy of that city or that county and it prevents disasters um, like what we're seeing in the future. So those are two areas that I would try to make some some changes. Um, and I think those changes are possible, but they're not possible if every time a disaster happens, the president goes to the lectern and just starts throwing the blame around. You think it's possible to, to reach a bipartisan agreement in these dark times that we're having with polarization as it is, with the Republican Party so very clearly inclined to fight against environmentally sound policy? I'm hopeful if something positive can come out of a disaster is it often does uh, scramble up the partisanship a little bit. You know, the, mm -hmm. the fact is that in American history, we've often seen after disasters moments where partisanship doesn't really cut it with citizens who don't want to hear about their enemy anymore. They want to hear about how the government is going to help them make their lives whole again and avoid it from happening in the future. That means, however, that policymakers and nonprofits and academic talkers like me, we really have to have our ideas together before the disaster occurs. These ideas have to be uh, ready to go. And that's another area for research, you know, to really to have solutions on hand for when the, the moment presents itself. So that's, that gives me some hope. And I think we've seen moments, I don't always agree with the policies that get made, but, um, you know, after disasters, you do, you do often find policymakers at different parties coming together. In this particular hyper-partisan moment, Also, uh, particularly following the midterm election, there are going to be a lot of districts where it's not so easy to be hyperpartisan anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe this is a moment that, that, we, can, that we can see some, um, some return to, to sanity in that regard, I would hope. The challenge is to take the moment of disaster and begin to learn some lessons from it. We have to be very clear also that the president is wrong when he says the disaster was over when I left. Puerto Rico, and not that many people died. And I expect him to say some similar sort of thing about California. We have to actually challenge him. We have to actually say he's wrong. 
we have to actually be very clear that a disaster doesn't end just when the last FEMA check is cut. These disasters provide economic um, difficulties that are very hard for communities to overcome. They cause traumatic stress. They don't just end a month or six months or sometimes a year or longer after. We have to attend to that. That's sort of like a, an honest reckoning of the cost of disaster. And I think that honest reckoning will lead to greater bipartisan uh, activity. So this is why I think it's important we think about disasters as a process, not just one-off events that happen and are, and are over. And the president is lying about that. So we have to challenge that. And lastly, Scott, tell me one thing you would like Donald Trump to understand, really understand, if possible, about disasters such as California's uh, devastating wildfires. Just one thing. His words are causing greater pain to people who have already suffered. And I don't know. There are examples where he seems to understand the power of his communication going beyond scoring political points. And I, I think he needs to understand that um, when he blames victims, when he uh, doesn't praise first responders enough, when he looks to um, these kind of moments to score points, cause pain, that it really, it really does matter. And so that's the thing I'd like for him to understand. Thank you, Scott. This has been very, very enlightening. Thank you very much. Okay, Leon. Thank you very much. And that's the show for today. What do you think? I know, I know this episode was rather somber because this topic needed this sort of approach, but I'm sure we'll be back to a, to a lighter tone soon, just because we are, as you know, natural optimists. So let us know on Twitter what you thought. I'm Leon Krause at Leon, L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E, and the show is always at Real Trumpcast. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. John Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. Find him at, at johnnyd23 on Twitter. And I'm Leon Krause. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.